I am so excited about this next guest on the Career Musician Podcast. I've been following this guy's career for a long time and can say I am a huge fan of his work and was personally inspired by our talk on this episode, and I think you will be too. Phil Eisler is an award-winning composer with projects ranging from major motion pictures to gritty independent films, primetime television shows, and even concert stages. You may recognize some of his credits composing for binge-worthy shows, such as Empire, Unreal, Shameless, and Revenge, just to name a few. Eisler has been nominated for and has received numerous awards throughout his career, and I know I learned a lot from our conversation, and I'm so happy to share this awesome knowledge with all of you right here on the Career Musician Podcast with Phil Eisler. Absolutely. So I want to get right to it. Okay. Look, everybody can go online and dig up all the information about your history and about where you come from and, and a lot of that stuff, a lot of the stats, all the awards. I mean, the awards are ridiculous. Your resume is beautiful. I mean, just one you know, hit after the next. But here's what I want to know. When I first saw you on Revenge, <laughs> you were listed as Eisler, I-Z-L-E-R. Right. And my wife, she's my business partner. We've been going back and forth and we landed on Nomad. Reason being, my last name is really hard to spell. People always get uh -huh. confused. I always felt like, you know, that one name thing is kind of cool and people can identify it. How did you come about yours? Did you, did you think the same way for Eisler? And then I noticed now you go back to Phil and then the full spelling of Eisler. So tell us about that. <laughs> um, well, it was one of those things where, you know, it's happened back in the band days and it was a producer I was working with at the time who was like, you should be Asla with a Z. And and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, it was 26 at the time, 25 or something. I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And then, you know, by the time I hit, I hit, you know, 35 or so, it was kind of kind of felt a bit daft to be honest. Um but funnily enough, it did it, it did help in the very beginning for people to identify me a little bit. Um, even if it was for them saying, who's that pretentious asshole? You know, I don't, I don't particularly care what anybody else thinks anyway. So it, it worked out fine. But I think by the time I got to my mid to late 30s, it was like, all right, can I, I, I think I can have my name back now. I think I've earned it. I love that. Well, I appreciate that the shedding the light on it. And I love the fact that you don't care because what I always say as musicians, as artists, we can't be concerned with other you things. And not. So. And, and if, you know, if I was going to go back and give the younger me any advice, it would be to listen to the people around me less. Now, that's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't have confidants or, or um, mentors or, you know, like people who's people who you really trust. But you've you, you got to listen to yourself more. It's funny. I think the reason that a lot of creativity happens when you're when you're younger, you know, and the really audacious shit can happen when you're younger is because, you know, you kind of are audacious when you're younger and, and it's, I'm not going to say you give less of a shit because that's not necessarily true either, but you, you kind of, you don't know any better to not have the strength in your convictions. And that's a good thing, you know? And then some of us just never grow up. <laughs> just keep being arrogant. I could, yeah, but I love that. I couldn't agree more, man. That's really a good paradigm. I think it's very important. So uh, check it out. The other thing is you started off as like this, touring musician guy and then you trans mm -hmm. transition into this world-renowned composer once again uh i identify with that like so many others that are listening i'm sure we'll be able to 
Tell us about that transition. Uh, you were with Robbie Williams and quite a few others, Dave Stewart, Ryan yeah. Adams, this goes on. Right. Yeah, I mean, with those, you know, I spent most of my time in Robbie's band at the, at the time. Those other credits are mostly sort of one-off things that I did and uh, records that I played on or writing that I did with people. Um, so most of it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was great because actually through Robbie, I got to work with a few other artists like Tom Jones, Kylie Minogue, and, and uh, I'm not sure if that's where the Dave Stewart thing came about, but, the, but you know, just a bunch of other bunch of other people but mostly i was i never set out to be a session player really you know i wanted to have a band at the time uh i remember getting offered the gig to be in robbie's band and at the time robbie wasn't it's not that he wasn't a known quantity he was because he'd been in a boy band but that's what he was known for so people didn't necessarily take him that seriously at the time that's putting it kindly and i was a pretty snotty you know, indie kid, shoegazing, you know, I'm not going to join a fucking boy band until my, until my uh, flatmate at the time pointed out that not only was I not being invited to join a boy band, but I hadn't paid the rent in six months. And if I didn't take the gig, she'd kick me out. So, um, so I went and met, met up with Robbie and mainly I just liked him. We got on really well. We have a very similar sense of humor and, you know, we just got on really well. And then when I heard his demos, I was like, oh shit, this guy's the real thing, you know? So that sort of drew me in because at the time, as you could tell by my, by the state of my rent, I wasn't particularly concerned with money actually. Um, and, uh, um, you know, so it was more about, you know, even though obviously it was Robbie Williams and it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like he went and formed a band, but it felt like a band at the time. We were all in our early twenties there was some monster musicians in that band, um, like Yolanda Charles, who's uh, actually, if you want to interview anyone, great, you've got to interview Yolanda. She's um, she's a phenomenal bass player, and she um, she's actually, I think she's in Hans Simmer's band now, and she plays in, in Squeeze, and she's played with millions of people, but amazing musician. Martin Slattery, another one who played with uh, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros, um, Chris Sharrock, who was in the Lars, you know, that's, did, did that song, There She Goes. Like, just, you know, great, great players. So I was totally like a pig in shit, you know, just loving being amongst these these players and, and in this world and stuff. And it just sort of swallowed up a large chunk of my life very quickly. I didn't even notice, really, because I was 24 when I joined that band, or 23 even. It was really, it was, and, you know, we started off, trying to play theatres and couldn't fill them. Like, nobody took Rob seriously, then bit by bit, mostly through just touring, 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 um, he took off. And, it, I mean, it was a short space of time. It was probably, the in the space of a year, he went from sort of not being taken very seriously to being the biggest artist, certainly in England and Europe. Um, and that was it. I didn't really do, you know, the... The other artists I played with and the other session bits I did were mostly peripheral to that until I came to LA. And then then I had to, you know, I'd moved from London to New York, um, knew tons of people in New York. So there I was just sort of setting about, you know, putting a band together and stuff. And then when I moved to LA, it was actually to, to move here to be with my wife. And I didn't know anybody here. Um, 
And uh, so it, it took a minute for me to sort of figure things out. And I was still flying back to New York and back to the UK to play sessions to, you know, to pay the mortgage for, for a while, quite a while, actually. Right. Um, and then, you know, bit by bit, the film thing took off. Ah, okay. So tell us about that, how it all formulated. So you said you didn't really set out to be a session cat, but you ended up doing quite right. a Did you start off from an early right. point focusing on being a composer? Did you know early on you wanted to be a composer? Uh, you mean for films? I, yeah. I mean, not specifically. I, I, It's something I always wanted to do. And, and you know, looking back on it, I was... At, probably as in love with movies as I was was with music or it was a close second music was you know everything but movies were definitely a close second and and even as a little kid I used to love watching the the behind the scenes stuff on on you know whatever movie I was watching that week um always just like loved watching the behind the scenes vignettes that like Spielberg used to make and Lucas used to make so Yes, it's. I, I suppose it's in, in some ways it's something I wanted to do, but it wasn't like, it really wasn't until I think sort of my very early 30s that I started thinking about it seriously. Excellent. And how did you, does this, how does this sound, by the way? Is this better or worse? Much better. better? Okay, yeah. good. I tried one last thing. Okay, so, and how did you gravitate towards guitar? Did, was Again, was <laughs> there natural inclination there or a process of other things or? no i i've so i was a huge beatles fan as a kid i was born in prague and you know in 73 so this is still communist era you know um way before the velvet revolution and we got out of the country when i was around nine so my sort of very younger years I was studying classical piano. Um, I was, you know, learning to read music, all the things that, you know, you'd sort of expect. Uh, my exposure to Western music, meaning pop music, yeah. even from the 60s and 70s, was, you know, pretty minimal because there just wasn't any around. It wasn't allowed. You know, it was mostly banned. It was mostly unavailable. But my mum and dad had been in England in the 60s. That's where they'd met. So um, before the Russians invaded in 69. So it was um, or 68, 69, I forget. Um, but uh, they had a sort of small handful of records. So, you know, a, a few Beatles albums, a few Dylan albums, a few things like that. And that was pretty much the extent of my exposure to, to that stuff. So I was a big Beatles head. Um, moving to England, I think I sort of, you know, I'm sure my parents were pretty busy just trying to find their footing, being in a country where, you know, my mum didn't speak the language and, and all the rest of it to sort of worry about piano lessons. So I, it, I sort of dropped it for a little while. And then I remember actually before we left, I remember my dad coming home one day to pick me up from school and he had a guitar with him and he bought it like in a department store in Prague. Um, I might still have that guitar somewhere in the in the attic or something. I mean, it's absolutely you know, it's, it's virtually unplayable, but it's it's um, yeah. he he got it just because basically he was a big Dylan fan, big kind of fan of folk music, Dylan Donovan, Woody Guthrie, and um, he would he would sing me a lot of those songs when I was a little kid, 
Um, and then eventually, of course, I pestered him, and, you know, into teaching me a few chords and stuff. And that was it. You know, then I was just in love with it. So I'd, I just decided this was something I wanted to do, as precocious as it sounds. Mm-hmm. I knew 100% that this was what I wanted to do when I was eight years old or nine years old. That's awesome. And it's never changed. And that feels to me, you know, especially now that I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old kid, I that feels like a, a real gift, you know, it, um, to know, just know what you, you're going to do for the rest of your life. You know, when an eight-year-old says that, you're like, okay, you know, I'm going to be a Navy SEAL or some, something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be president. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's funny. Again, I can relate so much because I knew I was going to be a guitar player. And by right. the time I was like 13, 14, I was like, I'm going to be a session cat. I just knew it. Right. Like, right. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't you know? know at 13, 14 what the hell a session guy was. I because mean, I was, I was, that, I was, it's interesting because I have a, a couple of friends, you know, that are session guys that always aspired to be that, whereas I wanted to be a Beatle. You know, I wanted to be. Yeah. And they were like, not interested in that shit. What I mean, I think you know Tarek Akoni, right? Yeah, of course, a good yeah, guy. So Tarek, yeah. Tarek is an old friend of mine, and he, you know, he's one of those. Um, Aaron Sterling, I don't know if you know him. He's like phenomenal, phenomenal drummer. Yeah, he's played with John Mayer for the last few years. Oh, nice. Um, but you know, he's played with everybody, and, yeah. and he's one of my favorite musicians on the planet. Yeah, yeah. But he's the same. He was like, no, I always wanted to be a studio guy. Like, how did you know? Did, were you into like Steve Gadd or something? Or- <laughs> well, it's funny because I, you know, who were your heroes when you were growing up? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, Eddie Van Halen. So I see Eddie, you know, I'm, I think I'm just a year older. I was born in 72. So uh-huh. I saw Eddie on MTV and I was like done. And then I just started reading all the publications. And that's when I learned about, you know, Steve Lukather and Michael Landau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul Jackson Jr. and then those guys became my heroes. And but then I, those guys were in bands. I mean, obviously Eddie, yeah. but you know, Lukather and all. I mean, although he was definitely a session player, but the, yeah. you know, they were they were in bands, man. Were I mean, bands were, too. Well, yeah. when I was that age, I was super uh, introverted, so mm-hmm. I, I said, okay, if I'm in the studio, I don't have to be on stage. And then it wasn't until later that I got my first gigs. When I was 18, 19, 20, I was like, oh, no, I want to do it all the way, rock and roll style. Yeah, oh, I, I fell for that bit hard. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I was uh, out of the house every chance I got right. just to right. play anyway. It's funny. I had a couple of one – of one of my first jobs was just, like, sweeping the floor in a local rehearsal studio. You know, it was just, like, yeah. the kid who made the tea and swept the floor and That's set up the gear. And I loved that job. Loved it. Because – First of all, I don't know how they ever made money because nobody ever rehearsed there. <laughs> it was empty most of the time. But that was great because if we had no clients and I was there all day just kind of keeping the place open, I could just practice. I just had practice rooms. So I would play drums, I would play guitar, I would play bass. I would just have this shit set up and play. Yeah. And um, it used to drive my boss mental. And then they had a recording studio too where, you know, I gradually sort of, pestered them to teach me how to use the equipment and and i I ended up running it for them for for a little while or being their sort of main engineer wow Um, i was just gonna say did you learn how to use a a console then is that was that how you did did, but but at a much like lower level it wasn't like you know guys who were apprenticed at abbey road or anything this was like a dingy little punk studio in south london when south london was rough as fuck like just Uh. Like going to going to work every night, you know, you definitely ran the risk of getting mugged. Wow! Uh, and it, and 
it was in some like little industrial estate in the middle of nowhere in, in yeah. but i think which was really miserable in the 80s it was a not like not a fun place but this this place just had a little 16 track sort of demo studio where people i mean it was mostly terrible bands that would like save up their money to go record a demo on the weekend you know like they had day jobs they were they weren't real pro bands or anything most of them weren't and um on the odd occasion that like you know a pro band would come through we'd be like oh look at this they've got their own flight cases with like their names sprayed sprayed on the side and shit. like this is everything we aspire to we must have our own cases that's it the cases the branded <laughs> oh go on yeah the branded like, cases man but yeah i mean I, I did learn how to use you know a console and we didn't it wasn't even a 24 track machine it was a it was like a 16 16 track one inch i guess um and uh yeah i learned how to use that stuff but very much on the fly it wasn't wasn't a real technical education I'm, I'm by no means an engineer but i did learn a lot you know that i obviously still sort of use to this day i'm glad you said that because nowadays uh, of course during since the pandemic even more so but a lot of the trend has been shifting towards oh i can do everything i'm a producer composer writer arranger orchestrator engineer blah 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 you know it's like well hold on people let's not forget about the days when there was actually fucking collaboration and right. the collaborative effort actually raises the bar and right. again, that's something that I really look up to for people like you and our good buddy who connected us, by the way, Tim Davies. Yeah. You know, uh, fantastic orchestrator, arranger. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I still love that about that's what I love about the Hollywood composer, uh, uh, you know, model that you well, still have a team. Well, yeah, but the team, I mean, that's a, that's a, an interesting one because the team comes more out of necessity than creativity a lot of the time uh, unless you know you approach it that way which i do because it it's i realized very early on that uh, that this is so much work that if it's not fun it's just not worth it you know and right. um, and that the team part becomes a necessity out of just making deadlines you know it's it is definitely a team sport you can't you can't do it all yourself not in time anyway um, but the thing is with, you know, you can make that fun too. And the reason I set up a studio over at the Warner brothers lot, which obviously we haven't been there since March, we've all been working from home, but, um, is because I, I wanted that. I wanted to be surrounded by creative people. And I wanted to sort of harken back to my days in the Sundance labs a little bit, because what I liked about that program in particular was we were all set up in you know, trailers next to each other. This was back when it was in Utah before it was at the Sundance Ranch where it is now. And, you know, you'd kind of walk out and have a cigarette and a cup of coffee, whatever, and have a chat with people. And, and um, you know, I, I loved that. I loved that. And that's kind of the atmosphere I wanted in my studio. I wanted to sort of, you know, walk out. The reality of it is nobody walks out. We're just, you know, in our rooms trying to, make deadlines most of the time and not getting any sleep but you know the, the the principles there it's the thought that counts yeah well hey you know everybody always says be careful when you're asking for a tv series because you don't oh, yeah. realize the amount of work and oh, yeah. you, you're probably the umpteenth person who has affirmed that for me uh but i want a tv series so bad i'm just chomping at the bit so well, you, you're here at a good time i mean there's <laughs> christ there's so much being made right, right. 
Exactly. So, so tell us about that. I mean, you know, of course you've done revenge, you're, you, you do empire, you've done many others, unreal, you know, shameless, uh, you know, there's so many, tell us about the ins and outs of that, man. I mean, um, you, you mean on the creative side or on the, on the, well, well, both on the creative, because you have so many cues that you have to create so many teams, right. but also on the logistical side of how to best use your team to your advantage, you know? You well, I'm sure someone far cleverer than me said this, but basically the the plan is, you know, hire brilliant people and then just let them get on with their jobs. Um, you'd be surprised at how few people do that. It's it definitely requires sort of letting go of your ego a little bit, and you know, realizing that you cannot get this all done by yourself. So you know, a great music editor, great engineers, people like Tim, great orchestrators. Um, it's it's definitely worth having you know people that are smarter than you in the room at all times. Right. But I I think um, the process creatively it's it's um, been surprisingly helpful for me because for someone who set out to be in music because they wanted a life where there were no rules and didn't want to be constrained and the thought of you know the thought of being like everybody else when I was a kid. Um, as much as I stuck out like a sore thumb at school, the thought of being like everybody else would have made me fucking suicidal. Like I couldn't couldn't handle that at all. It, uh, and I still find that scarier than anything. The idea of you know, even though we kid ourselves and we all conform to something, but the idea of just being a sort of you know living in the suburbs and that whole bit still to this day just. Be, feels like a dead end and dead ends scare me more than anything like not being able to just take off that idea frightens me more than more than anything and yet the deadline somehow is my best friend i don't know i don't know why um but without a deadline i just don't have the same drive and and somehow that drives the creative process for me as well it's, it might just be fear. <laughs> I, I love that. It's funny because Eric G and I are both nodding our heads in unison uh, as you're saying that. You know, he's my right hand man. We're a team, and I love how you say delegate and trust. You know, don't I? I, I don't like micromanaging. I love having a talented person say, "Here, do this." But we've learned that deadlines are the same for us. It, for some reason, when you're smashed up against that deadline, I guess it almost invigorates you to just, you know, go for it. Yeah, it does, and and I think um, the I, I think the key to delegating successfully is I've sort of found out, and I, I learn a bit more about this every day. But I think it's sort of getting good with the fact that other people are going to impart their fingerprints on your stuff. Mm. So whether be it creatively or logistically or whatever, like they're going to bring something to it. And why wouldn't you want them to? It's only your ego that might want to prevent that. But you, you want that, you know, it's just that as anybody who, who's ever created anything will know, you get that sort of bolt of lightning of like that, oh shit, I've had an idea and it sounds great in your head. And by the time that becomes reality, it's something very different. You know, it's like I've, I've heard the darker of my, uh, the, the, the people with the darker senses of humor that I know would describe it as, you know, it just gets continually worse from idea to, to, to actual inception um, until it sort of is what it is and then you just give up. 
Right, right. No, I, I, I don't. I don't quite share that point of view. Like I, I you know, but having produced a bunch of records and having written a bunch of songs that then you know go on to sort of have a life of their own. I I quite like that in some ways. I mean, uh, or at least you you're open to the the sort of the concept of happy accidents. You know, like that happens and that was not on the roadmap that was not in the plan, but it's great. So why not? You know, it's why would you get rid of that? You know, it's it's great. Um, and that helps when you're delegating a lot because it, it's not going to be what you had in your head when you sort of, you know, when you uh, came up with it in the first place, it's going to be something different, but that's all right. And I think when people hire you for a movie, they sort of, I don't think the important thing is for everybody that, you know, you touch every single component. I think it's that it's your vision. However you go about making that. I mean, when people make records, they make people, they make records in teams, you know, there are producers and engineers and mastering engineers, and they all impart something on the, on the process. Absolutely. Um, that's the, that's the great thing about music. It's the great thing about movies. You know, there's no such thing as an auteur director. That's a myth. <laughs> so I saying Hitchcock was an auteur. No, he wasn't. Right. He wasn't running the camera. He wasn't mixing the sound. He might have been, you know, maybe he was micromanagerial and, you know, whatever. For all the stories you've read about Hitchcock or, you know, James Cameron or Michael Mann, you know, it's like they all collaborate. They might have a strong vision. They might be strong leaders, but they all collaborate. Hi, I'm Phil Eisler, and you're listening to The Career Musician with my friend Nomad. Blasting the stereotype of musicians. Follow us at The Career Musician Podcast. Help us continue to provide you with new and engaging content by getting our ratings up. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You guys implemented this home recording system for all of the orchestra players and anyone who else was involved. Uh, man, talk about that. The career musician, we're, we're, we're like an, an education platform. We're here to empower musicians with mm -hmm. strategies for right. a sustainable career, right? Uh, and we just released a six-step guide to home recording, pro-level sessions. Oh, you know? Yeah, and it's free. You go to the website and you download and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's interesting I know probably a good 50% of my musician buddies already have it dialed in. And yeah. another, there's a whole other faction of people who haven't right. done it yet. Um, and you mentioned that in the video. You're like, and some of our orchestra players, you know, didn't have a setup. So talk about an undertaking, you know. Yeah, it, it was. And it's funny looking back on it now because I, I feel like almost every musician that was in that orchestra has a, has a home recording setup now, you know. Right. Um, my God, how much the landscapes changed right. in the last nine months. And what a day to be talking about it. Yeah, I know. That's right. That's talking right. about it. Yeah, Inauguration oh. Day. That's right. Yeah. Oh, thank Christ for that. <laughs> um, Amen. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a big undertaking. It felt like a big undertaking at the time, but not... It, it was also that time at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was like baking bread and doing yoga and like chin down, hands up. We're going to do this, guys. We're all going to learn jujitsu online and learn to knit and bake sourdough, you know. 
And now then three months told. later, <laughs> three, months, three months later, they're still in their pajamas in the front room going, but still? <laughs> and um, uh, in that time, uh, I think everybody was very driven to sort of find solutions. So in some ways I found the, the studios very receptive in other ways i didn't once it got going it, i found them receptive when when um when i first brought up the idea everybody was still in the sort of head in the sand phase and they didn't really want to deal with it and, and i think that what brought them around was you know a handful of us so by us i mean a few composers sort of saying uh guys we, you know we're still recording but we're still putting out material making tv shows and movies and there's a shitload of out of work musicians out here yeah. um, that we employ on a weekly basis. Normally we can't just stop like these people have mortgages to pay and shit. Right. And, um, so that drove that process and it was, it was mostly basically, to, you know, I, I knew that that handful of musicians were relying on the income from the last few weeks of empire before the, the series came to a close and, uh, it was just a way of trying to keep them gainfully employed, basically. That said, I think we've learned a lot about the process since. I mean, at the time, I was talking to, amongst other people, Disney and Microsoft, not Microsoft directly, but a developer for Microsoft, about um, trying to figure out some kind of way of recording remotely simultaneously, from several points simultaneously. Right. And, you know, obviously that's that is enough that has not been cracked still yeah. um and <laughs> to put it in the words of uh one abbey road engineer who's a friend of mine who said we'll land on mars before we figure that one out <laughs> yeah. um, so in some ways you know we found creative solutions i think in the end you that's know right. um and we're still doing that i mean i'm you know i'm in the middle of a movie now and trying to figure out how to do that we just did you know sort of plans for how we're going to record everything remotely. Um, even as the vaccine's rolling out and, you know, hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel, who knows? Right. Um, but I will say that whole experiment, great though it was, is no substitute for an orchestra in a room. I couldn't agree more. It's funny. I think about when, when I landed back in 2005 here in LA, shortly thereafter, I got hooked up with John Powell mm. and I'll never forget. There was, I did a couple films with him at his studio and then there was one, he said, look, I don't have the time to micromanage this. Here's a bunch of good mics and preamps. Go mm -hmm. home and do it. You know, I already had a setup, but he wanted me to use his certain signal path. You yeah. Know? Right. So that was a blast because I got to go home and just cut all the guitars, you know. Right. Uh, and that was a long time ago. My point is, look, if for the musicians listening who don't have that setup, yeah. we implore you, get it set up, right? <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah. You need you need to be able to make stuff. I mean, this is the age of making stuff. This is, right. although I've been doing this as long as I can remember. I had, you know, yeah. back when I joined Robbie's band before that, way before that, from my early teens, I had recording setups at home from, you know, whether it was a four-track cassette thing, which right. funnily enough, are back in my arsenal now as, as you yeah. know, I'm getting into this whole sort of lo-fi world. Right, I have the, I have my Tascam four to one over here. <laughs> I, I yeah, the exact same thing. Right behind my speaker, yeah, I got like three different um, port studios in various states of disrepair or being disemboweled to make weird noises and stuff. I love it. Um, but 
you know, and then I always had, um, even, it, was, it does make me laugh now because Robbie's band sort of started in like, I think it was 97. My recording setup then was like a dirty, great big analog board, a, a reel-to-reel one-inch 16 track. And, you know, it was budget as fuck. It was like, you know, a bunch of SM57s and guitar pedals for my effects. Like I rem- and I remember recording this one song uh, into, onto ta- I, re- I did the drums onto tape in my bedroom, onto tape with three SM57s, which is all I had, and some like Audio Technica mic I had at the time. Only had one rack compressor, so I had a couple of compressor pedals, so I went through those and then sampled onto an S1000 and chopped up, right? And then replayed on the tape. Because yeah. it's uh, with, uh, what was I running to trigger it? Must have been like Cubase. No, not Cubase. It would have been Notator. Ah. Synced to fucking analog tape. Wow. So it must have taken days to do that shit. That's and then cool. I remember trying to recreate that when we went to re record that song. Uh, we did a version of it with Robbie like a few years later. At, I forget which studio, but we just could not get the sound. It was like, how the hell did you get that? So, you know, and in the end, I had to dig up the floppy disks and find, wow. you know, like download the shit for, you know, to, to be able to play on, find an S1000 somewhere and play this, this stuff back onto two inch tape <laughs> to just get it because there was no recreating it. See, that's the kind of thing I live for. I, I, I love that one off. This is not, you know, music is not a quantifiable thing. It's not zeros and ones. It's not um, notes on a page on music. Right. Well, no, okay. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Speaking of that, okay, so what's your preferred DAW now? Do you do you compose in Logic and then do all your audio in Pro Tools like so many no. others do? Or what do you I prefer? used to. Funnily enough, that's exactly what I used to do. Yeah. I used to do, but there was a point where I was doing a lot of songwriting and then starting to do a lot of film music. And so because Pro Tools at the time was Pro Tools 7 yeah. was great and it was super stable, but it was, uh, the MIDI was shit. It was just non-existent. Mm-hmm. So I used Logic for that stuff and Pro Tools for the song stuff. And at, at a certain point I was like, why am I using two programs? This is a stupid waste of time. Plus Logic was just, it was useless back then. I know that's John's favorite software, isn't it? It is. But it still I, I have no idea what it's like now, but at the time it was just, it was, there are so many bugs in it and it was an absolute nightmare. And I just, I, and it didn't sound very good to me. Yeah. It's not whenever I played with the same mic, pre everything in approach, oh. it sounded so much better. So I love hearing you yeah, say it that. It might be completely different these days. I'm, I'm not going to be one of these guys that has a, <laughs> booth in the park going pro tools is the best change my mind i don't give a fuck use a you know use whatever you want exactly but i ended up just going with pro tools when pro tools 8 came out because all the midi right. stuff came out and of course that's the very moment that pro tools started crashing all the time <laughs> um but for better or for worse i've stuck with it and so I, i've been in pro tools for probably 15 odd years actually yeah um, and and to this day, you know, now it's um, and it's condensing more and more actually because it used to be two HD rigs, one for video and one for sequencing, with you know three or four computers running. Now it's getting smaller, you know. Now it's I'm actually about to condense all of that into one computer because I don't need two Pro Tools rigs and it's 
a nightmare to manage and latency and all kinds of crap. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's nice to see all of that going away, actually. Yeah, that's awesome. I yeah. love seeing you in the conductor chair. Is that <laughs> something that, again, was that a process? Or were you like, nope, I'm going to be a conductor. I know I'm going to. And I know you studied with uh, somebody who's really uh, intense with that. I can't find it right now. Well, a few, actually. Yeah. Um, Dave Newman. Yes, uh, that's what I saw. Um for one, and Lucas Richmond, who's also a great teacher. I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't like I set out to be a conductor. In fact, it was something I was terrified of because when I started in film music, I I hadn't really read music since I was, since the age of maybe 18 or 19. I, I just didn't need it. You know, as a session player, I would maybe do some, you know, sort of jot down some lead sheets, and that, that was about it. When you came to a session, it was there was never sheet music. It was always, you know, someone would sit down with an acoustic, play you a song, and then you'd figure out the arrangement. And da -da -da, that, but those were the kind of sessions I did. So reading music wasn't necessary, and, and it wasn't really necessary when I started doing film either. But the more I kind of went back to my classical roots that had been there as a as a kid really and the more i sort of fell in love with that and the more i wanted to do it uh, the more i tried to find ways into doing it i've sort of considered going back and doing a music degree and then i just thought well that's kind of pointless because there's um there's so much in there that isn't really going to help me directly studying when you're 30 is very very different to studying when you're 19. you know it's it's um absolutely it's a very very different process and you've already formed so much of your musical mind, I suppose, or your, your voice or whatever that is. So uh, I guess, and where did it begin? I think it was actually BMI who turned me onto it, onto Lucas Richmond's course, when I'd sort of said, I remember having an agent, now very much my ex-agent, who I said to, you know, I really want to do more orchestral stuff. And he said, what do you want to do that for? Every kid out of USC is doing that. Don't do that. Yeah. And I thought, fuck you, man. I want, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, remember what I said? You know, stop listening to the people around that's you. So right, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, don't surround yourself with people like that. That would be my tip for the day. There you um, go. But uh, BMI said, um, a very good friend of mine at BMI said, yeah, we have a conducting course and it's a sort of a fellowship. We pick six people every year and, you know, maybe a space will open up next year or whatever. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to have a bit of a refresher course on theory and start to, you know, get my brain back into it. And then, of course, space opened up that year. And I said, well, hang on, I can't even really read this stuff yet. Like, you know, give me a year. Yeah. And they were like, it's now or never. It's up to you, mate. Ooh, I so, love it. So I had kind of three months to get my shit together in a very, yeah. very intensive so I, I hired a teacher and you know and started sort of reconnecting all those all those bits of my brain. I love it. Do do things that scare us, right? It only helps us grow. It was terrifying at first, and it's yeah. funny to think that I feel fairly fa pretty comfortable with it now. I love conducting more than anything else. It's it's my connection. It's my last connection to the music. It's my last chance, apart from mixing, to really form the music. And having spent my life, you know, in recording studios anyway, it's it's very it's, it feels like home to me, um, which is why I don't 
really sit in the booth as much. Um, I know there's a lot of different schools of thought on that. You know, some composers are sort of like tethered to that idea that you have to be in the booth and you have to hear every finite detail and all the rest of it. But, you know, I think there's a point where you still have to mold the music. And for me, that's much easier being in a room with musicians and doing it through sheets of glass and, you know, headphones. And it just immediately turns it into something clinical for me anyway. You know, everybody has their own process, I suppose. But um, I don't know. For me, that's just something that I fell in love with pretty much right off the bat. The way I tend to fall in love with things that scare the shit out of me. Yes. That's sort of a pattern. Yeah. Like, I, I'll be fucking terrified of doing it. And, of course, the first day of the, the, the conducting course, um, Lucas Richmond, my teacher then, who, you know, I love to bits. He's a, he was an amazing first teacher. Um, the first day we had to get up and conduct two pianos. Um, you'd be surprised how bad a train wreck that can be when you don't know what you're doing, as I found out very quickly. Um but I, I thought, well, you know, at least I'll get to watch a few of the other people cock up and then, you know, see where their mistakes were. And, of course, he calls my name first and he's like, up you come. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to do uh, we're going to do Beethoven's first, just the first movement. Off you go. I thought, oh, fuck. And, of course, it was a disaster. <laughs> and... and uh, and I'd been, you know, and I'd been practicing and thinking, well, I knew what I was doing. I've been practicing for three months and thinking, right, I've, I'm on it. Watched every video of every conductor and soaked up every Bernstein quote and all the rest of it. And of course, I got up there and I was absolutely shit. Um, but pretty much right away, after the initial sort of like horrific disappointments, because they video what you're doing, which, by the way, if you're an aspiring conductor, is the best. You'll you'll hate yourself and you'll cry pretty much every time, but but you'll um, you'll learn a lot. Uh, and after you get over that crushing, you know, ego murder, you'll sort of either fall in love with it or it's not for you. But I fell in love with it. It was really it was like, oh man, this is something I really want to do. It's I love that. Man. I, took, I took up. I've taken up a couple of things recently, which are clearly not a good idea for me to take up, especially being, you know, being 47 and not, you know, like I, you know, took up jujitsu a couple of years ago and constantly injured and, you know, but absolutely in love with it. Skiing, similarly, like three years ago, I hadn't really skied much in my life a couple of times. Now it's like I'm completely addicted to it. You know, they're both a fairly stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, but but it breaks. Musician, you it know. breaks the norm from what you're used to every day. You have to zoom out and get into something totally different, right? To, well, to cleanse the path. Yeah. The, the more, the older I get, the more I realize that the old cliche of you know t how precious time is. Yeah. And if you love something, you better fucking do it. That's right. Because there is no later. It's That's it's right. now. You know. That's right. So. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really, I try not to shy away from things that scare me. I try not to take things on just because they scare me because I've had a bit of a propensity for doing that as well. And that's not always good either. But, you know, you can tell, you can tell pretty quickly. And conducting was one of those things for me, for sure. Beautiful. Well, hey, listen, in honor of keeping your time, because I know it's super valuable. Once again, thank you so much. Before we go, can we do some rapid fire real quick? Absolutely. Yeah. Don't even think about it. 
All right, Eric right. G, start the clock. Start the clock, maybe. Let's oh go. Oh, my God, go. we're on a timer. This is like the Queen's Gambit. Holy shit. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, great piece, by the way. Queen's Gambit. It All is. All right. In three, two, one. Top three artists in your playlist. Uh, Beatles, NWA, uh, Stravinsky. Studio or live? Both. Guilty pleasure food? Oh, God, Italian food. Easy. Three tour essentials. Uh, nothing that I can mention on your podcast. <laughs> Hidden talents. <laughs> Hidden talents. Yeah. Uh, see last answer. Libation <laughs> of choice. Libation of choice. Uh, Brunello. Guilty food pleasure. You already asked me that, didn't you? Uh, right. Italian oh. food. Oh, I already said that. Oh, shit. Well, what do you spend your money on for fun? Uh, I have money. <laughs> Fuck. I'll get around to that. Favorite decade of music? Oh God. Um 1970s or the 1770s. What would you do if you weren't a career musician? Oh maybe a cook. Maybe a cook. I love it. Shame on me. I asked the same question twice. Bro, <laughs> you crushed it. Phil Eisler, you are yeah. an inspiration to us all, especially no, here at you guys. I really, I really love that you're running this platform and you know, um, putting stuff out there for musicians. I think, I think it's awesome. And if you don't mind, I do have a little plug actually because I have a soundtrack album coming out. Please. And, um, I just did a movie with Melissa McCarthy, which just came out on HBO Max called Super Intelligence, and we did. Um, Speaking of conducting, we it was, you know, recorded when you were still allowed to record massive orchestras and choirs and all be in the same room together with very few click tracks, very old school, you know, approach to, to doing the whole thing. No pre-laser, just orchestra. And um, it was a really fun score to do, recorded with Sean Murphy, who does, you know, all of John Williams' scores and, and John's scores, who I'm sure you know. Absolutely. And, and uh, that's coming out on uh, Lakeshore Records at the beginning of February. So I'm really proud of that one. I, I hope people enjoy it. Well, we'll be sure to check it out. Where would you like to direct everybody? I know you have a, a great IG, Phil Eisler Music, and that's your website. Right. Yeah, I would say direct everybody to my Instagram. Uh, we're going to have a new website up and running fairly soon. But, you know, I'll announce all that on the, on the IG. Okay, awesome, brother. Man, thank you so much once again. Thank you, guys. That was yeah. fun.